Acts chapter 16, uh, beginning, if you will, in verse 22. Acts chapter 16, verse 22. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Let's pray together. Father, in these next few minutes, we're going to talk about such an incredibly important subject. Lord, every Sunday we talk about the gospel, we talk about the scripture, all of that's incredibly important, but today this question and answering this question rightly is the difference between an eternity in heaven and an eternity in hell. So Lord, help us not to miss today. Help us to stay engaged. Help our minds to stay alert. Help us to listen, knowing that you want to speak to us. In your name we pray. Amen. I want to begin today by telling you a story. It's about something that was written in this magazine. I, it's a periodical that I receive on a regular basis and I received this particular edition back in the summer of last year. And when I read that article, it became the impetus for this entire series of messages and our focus this year on the gospel. But I can't read to you three pages of an article. What I have to do is sort of tell you and read to you just short portions out of that article. In the article, he is talking about going, this particular author is talking about going to a church conference. Now, a church conference is a good thing. Church conferences are where pastors and leaders of churches and so forth will go and they'll exchange ideas and they'll talk with one another and they'll learn new methods and they'll learn ways to be more effective and ways to be more efficient in the work of the ministry. What's the best way to reach people? So that's a good thing. I've been to many over the course of, of my ministry life. And, and you learn things and you bring them back. Now, you can't ever take something that you learned somewhere else and just automatically impose it where you are because the context is different. 
but you take what you learn and you adapt it to your context and you implement it and you find that many of those things are very successful. So church conferences are a good thing and you want pastors to be able to do those kind of things, church leaders to do those kind of things, uh, to be able to go and continue. It's like continuing education, continuing to learn about being an effective minister of the gospel. But on this particular occasion, this man has gone to a a conference, a church conference, and it's a mega conference. Uh, I mean by that that there are 600 employees of this church that's hosting the conference. Now you think about how big that church has to be to have 600 employees. That's a mega, mega church. And they're hosting this conference. They're bringing these pastors in, these church leaders in. They're showing them what they're doing. They're teaching them ideas and thoughts and and maybe ways that they can be more effective. This man has gone to this conference, and he's very impressed with the conference. When he talks to any one of these 600 or he listens to any one of these 600 that are leading in this conference in different ways, in seminars and in classroom settings or in the services, he hears them all talking very clearly about what is the theme of the conference. It's right there on their shirt. What is the theme of the conference? And he hears them all using the same terminology. In other words, before this conference ever began, they were fully schooled in what was the theme, what was its purpose, in making sure that they used similar words when they were in their various meetings so that there was a unity about the conference. Uh, They used words uh, like irresistible or inviting or environments or other things of that nature. And he said one after another, as I'd go to these different rooms to hear different people speaking, they used these same words. They had been schooled and carefully prepared to say these same general things across all 600 of the employees. And he was impressed. You would be impressed. I am impressed when I go to a church conference and I see the detailed planning that goes in to make sure that there's coordination amongst all of the people who are participating. So he decided that he was going to do a little experiment. Now please understand, this is not a hit piece. I don't like hit pieces where you set somebody up and you go looking for their faults and then you write about it and expose it. This is not what this is about. I don't know what the church was. It's never mentioned in this article. I don't know uh, what the theme was. I don't know who the pastor of the church was. None of that's written in the article. It's not a hit piece. But he decided he was going to do a little experiment. And in that experiment, on the last day of the conference... He was going to go to as many of these 600, he couldn't go to all of them, obviously, but going to go to as many of these 600 workers, and he was going to ask them a question, and this was the question. What does someone have to do to receive eternal life? I mean, they had been well-schooled in the theme of the conference, in the right words uh, to, to use during the course of the teaching in the conference, and they were all uniform in that respect. But he was wondering... If I ask them how a person receives eternal life, what will their answer be? And so on the last day, rather than going to any of those sessions and any of those classes, he was just walking around looking for those who had on the same color shirt. It identified them as one of those 600 employees of the church and asking them that question. And what he discovered is what became the impetus for this series of messages he discovered that amongst those with whom he talked, there was no consistency of answer 
about what a person must do in order to receive eternal life. They were consistent about the theme of the conference. They were consistent about the words that they used during the conference. But when it came time for the gospel, what do you have to do to receive eternal life? There was inconsistency about the answers that were given. For instance, James, who was a member of the staff, said, I've never been told. Uh, this is how, I've never been told this is how you share the gospel. And then he went on, he confirmed that there is no training there is no training for sharing the gospel for staff or volunteers. Another woman by the name of Jenny uh, said, uh, said that their new believers class doesn't expressly focus on the plan of salvation. No attendee asks, in her memory, that question. What does it take to be saved and have everlasting life? Uh, one of the men that he talked with was a man by the name of Brian. He talked to him in the foyer of the church. He was the pastor over the adult ministries. He was a graduate of a well-respected evangelical seminary. And he asked Brian that question. And Brian gave a definitive answer. He said eternal life comes by an intimate relationship with Jesus. But then, then he admitted something startling. He said, you won't find consistency among our staff on salvation terminology. He said... You will get different answers based on who you ask. He explained that there's no training for staff on gospel presentation, evangelism, or even terminology consistency. Now, I don't know if you see a problem here. I see a problem. On the one hand, you've got a church conference where you have taken extra time to make sure everybody knows the theme, knows the purpose, and they use the buzzwords, the important words that they're trying to communicate to these many pastors and church leaders who have come to hear. But on the other hand, in what is the most important issue of life, is a man or a woman saved? How do they receive eternal life? There is no consistency, and there is no training so that there can be consistency. The author goes on to say, this church was and still is a bastion of evangelicalism. They not only have thousands of congregants weekly, but they also draw in thousands of other churches to come and learn their model, how, how to do church, their model. Many people are attracted, he says, by the way they structure their system. I admire the work they have done with this one exception. A random sampling of their staff could not consistently articulate the basic requirement of the gospel. So let me stop here and let me ask you a question. If someone were to come to you and say, what do I have to do to be saved? How would you answer that question? My prayer is that before we finish this series of messages and before we finish this year, that you will know what is the gospel and you will be able to explain it clearly and that you will be able to tell someone how they are going to receive eternal life. The only way that they're going to receive eternal life. Do you understand how important this is? This, this is a matter of people's eternal destiny. Did you know that every one of you are going to live somewhere forever? You are a body, soul, and a spirit. And your soul and your spirit, when it moves out of your body, does not cease to exist. 
You either find yourself in heaven with God or you find yourself separated from God in hell and you live forever. You are an eternal being. Not, not in the same sense that God is an eternal being. That's, maybe I should say it a little differently. God has no beginning and God has no ending. You had a beginning, but you have no ending. You will live forever and forever. Soul and spirit, you will live forever and forever, either with God in heaven or separated from God in hell. And getting the answer wrong, giving a convoluted answer, a confusing answer, a conflicting answer, jeopardizes not only your eternal soul, it jeopardizes the souls of everyone who's within the network of your life. It's important that a conference have a theme. It's important that you have a, a unity about you know, what terms you're going to use and what you're trying to emphasize through the course of this conference. Even more important is that you know what is the gospel and you know how to receive Jesus Christ, how to have life eternal. You know it. And you can articulate it clearly. I would for every person in our church, everyone who names the name of this church as their home church, that everyone can give that kind of an explanation and it's consistent. Now you may use synonyms where they use the word believe here in this text. You may say you come to the Lord or you may say I asked the Lord to save me or I called on the Lord to save me. But, but in all of those terms and all of those synonyms, you're saying the same thing. You've got to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But what is the answer to the question? What do I have to do to be saved? Well, you have to be baptized, right? You have to be a church member, right? You have to do good things, right? You have to keep the Ten Commandments, right? You have to read your Bible, right? You have to pray, right? You have to be a good community citizen, right? Wrong. For us to be saved, we must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This particular text that I've taken today emphasizes the correct answer that every one of us should memorize and we should learn how to give to people that are in our lives and in the network of our lives. So let's stop for a few moments and let's look at this text and let's make sure we understand this text. And if you go all the way back to the first verse of chapter 16, you discover that what's happening here in chapter 16 is that the Apostle Paul with Silas is on a missions trip. This is his second missions journey. If you look in verse 1, he comes to Derby and then to Lystra. If you look down to verse 2, he goes from Lystra to Iconium. You get down to verse 6, he goes through Phrygia and Galatia. In verse 7, he comes to Mysia and to Bithynia. And when you get to verse 8, he passes through Mysia and he comes to Troas. He's journeying. If you were to look on a map and you were to find these on an ancient map, you would discover that he leaves from Antioch and he's following the contours of the Mediterranean Sea. He's moving along the shores and inland of the Mediterranean Sea. So he goes north for a while, and then he moves west, northwesterly. And he's moving from one city to another, and as he goes to these different cities where God allows him, he preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. When he gets to Troas, he has a vision that's given to him. And there's a man saying, come over to Macedonia. Now, to get to Macedonia, he's going to have to get on a ship. 
Uh, he's going to have to go to Samothrace, that's an island out in the Aegean Sea, and then he's going to have to end up at Neapolis, that's the port city, and he's going to have to go in a little way to Philippi, that's in the territory of Macedonia. He's making a journey. You notice in verse 11, it says, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, that's the port city, and from there to Philippi. Now he's in Philippi in this Macedonian territory, in the city of Philippi. He's in Philippi. He's going to be there for a number of days. While he's there, he's there over a Sabbath. He's over more than one, but he's over this particular first Sabbath. Now please, when we talk about the Sabbath, that's not Sunday. A lot of people are confused. The Sabbath is not Sunday. The Sabbath is Saturday. Actually, the Sabbath is from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. That's the Sabbath. And he's there over a Sabbath. And he hears that there's a group of women who go down to the river to pray every Sabbath. Now here's what that means. That means that there were not enough men, Jewish men, in Philippi to constitute a synagogue. What was Paul's procedure when he came to most cities where there were Jews living? Most of the time he went first where? Right directly to the synagogue and preached the gospel to the Jews who were there. And then if they rejected the gospel... and they didn't reject the gospel. Then he moved on to the Gentiles. But there is no synagogue in Philippi, apparently because there are not enough Jewish men in this city to be able to constitute one. It took 10 men to be able to constitute a Jewish synagogue. And so what's left are the ladies, and they're meeting down at the river, and they're seekers of God. They don't yet know about Jesus Christ or the full uh, import of the gospel, but, but they're interested in God. They're, they're worshiping the one true God. And Paul says, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to preach the gospel to them. So he goes down to the river on this Sabbath. He sees these women praying and he probably prayed with them. Uh, but at some point he turns the, the conversation to the gospel itself, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. Right? We've talked about this in this series. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried. That proves that he was dead that he rose again by the power of the Almighty God, and he lives today. He was seen again and again and again so that all of us who, who will come to Jesus can be saved. He gives them the gospel. Well, it points out one particular woman who's down here at the river. Her name is Lydia. Lydia is a prominent businesswoman. She's probably a wealthy businesswoman. She's an influential businesswoman. She is a seller of purple. Uh, she makes this fabric and dyes this fabric and sells it. And she has a business and she's done well in her business. And the Bible says that God opened the heart of Lydia and Lydia received the gospel. She believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Lydia invites these men and those that are with them to come back to her house. And Paul and Silas stay in the city of Philippi for a period of time. But while Paul and Silas are you know, ministering throughout Philippi, there's a slave girl, a young girl, who is demon-possessed and who can predict the future. You know that's the only way you can actually do that? Is be demon-possessed? I realize that we get those fortune cookies at the end of our Chinese meal. That's just in fun. Please don't take any of that seriously. But when you see somebody who talks about, I can read the future, either it's a matter of sleight of hand. Are you with me? 
It's either a matter of sleight of hand or it's a matter of demonic activity. It's either a matter of sleight of hand or it's a matter of demonic activity. And this girl was demon-possessed. She was able to tell the futures of those, read the palms or whatever she did. Uh, laid out, they didn't have cars, but laid out the cars, if you will, to tell the futures of those who would come to her. And she was owned by some men who were making money off of her. Set her up in business, get people to come and make money as she, as she gives and tells the future of these individuals. Well, this young girl starts following Paul and Silas around. And listen to what she says. It's down in verse 17 of chapter 16. She says over and over, out loud, while they're walking through the city, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Isn't it interesting that the demons know the way of salvation? And a lot of Christians don't. And she just says it over and over and over and over until finally the Apostle Paul turns to her. You know what Paul does? He casts out the demon. Now he's got a problem. Now he's got a problem. Because you remember the men who owned this girl who made money off of her ability to be able to tell the future? They can no longer make money off of her. And they're angry because you have taken away my profits. You have taken money out of my billfold. And so they get Paul and Silas brought into the middle of the city. They have them beaten with rods. Can you imagine getting hit with rods over and over and over again? And then they give them to the Philippian jailer and they say, put him in the inner part of the prison and don't lose them. And the Philippian jailer takes them into the deepest, darkest, dampest part of, of the jail. He puts them in that jail cell he locks their feet in these stocks, and there they are. Nighttime comes. What would you do if you had just been beaten and unjustly thrown in jail? Well, let me tell you what Paul and Silas did. It says that at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang hymns to God. Can I just stop here for a moment and can I just tell you that here's what the people who don't know Jesus Christ really want to know. They really want to know, is this Christianity really real when life isn't easy? When everything isn't pushing up roses and all of life, a mountaintop experience. They want to know, in those moments, do you still praise God? In those moments, do you still pray to God? In those moments, do you still hold on to your faith in God? And here were these two men who have just been beaten in the inner prison, their feet in stocks. And rather than moaning and complaining and griping and grumbling about their mistreatment, they're praying and they're singing to God. Do you find that incredible? They're praying and they're singing to God. And guess what's happening? The, the prisoners are listening. The prison guard is listening. Sometime in those early morning hours, the ground begins to shake and earthquakes taking place. The jail cells all come open. The stocks in which these feet are bound come loose. That has to be supernatural. 
those stocks come loose. The prison guard is concerned. He, he, he knows that, that the Roman penalty is if I lose the prisoners that have been committed to my trust, then I will receive the punishment they would have received even to the place of death. And he looks and he sees the jail cells are open. He figures that all of the prisoners are now gone. And he takes the knife or he takes the sword and he starts to kill himself. And Paul from the inside of the prison says, stop. We are all here. Now, I'm not surprised that Paul and Silas are still there. What about all the other prisoners? Are you surprised? Those men in that prison were mesmerized by these two men who were singing and praying in the middle of the night after they'd been beaten and unjustly put in prison. They weren't about to move. They're going to watch what unfolds. Paul stops the prison guard from taking his life. He gets a light. The prison guard gets a light. He comes in. He sees all the prisoners are there. And can I tell you that while the earthquake shook the ground, what has been going on in that prison shook the very core of the being of that prison guard. He brings Paul and Silas out, and he asks that question, what must I do to be saved? Now, if you're writing down notes, I want you to write this down. This text tells us, first of all, about an important question. The most important question that has to be answered in your life is not what you're going to do with your finances. It's not how you're going to diversify your portfolio. It's, It's not how you're going to advance your career. It's not whether you're going to live here or you're going to live somewhere else. It's not about where you're going to go to college. It's not about what degree you're going to earn. It's not even about who you're going to marry. The most important question in life is what must I do to be saved? There is no more important question. Why? You're going to live somewhere forever. Your soul and spirit are going to live either with God forever or separated from God forever. We're not talking about what your life's going to be like for the next 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 years. We're talking about what your life is going to be like for eternity. There is no more important question than this question. Well, you notice the jailer didn't ask, what must I do to join the church? He didn't ask, what must I do to be a good person? He didn't ask, what must I do to be religious? He simply came to the understanding that he needed to be saved, even if he didn't understand what all of that meant at this moment. He knew he needed to be saved. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, saved from what? What do I need to be saved from? What does he need to be saved from? He needed to be saved from sin. Saved from hell. Saved from perishing. Saved from God's wrath. Saved from sin's bondage. Saved from spiritual death. Saved from condemnation. Saved from separation from God for all of eternity. He needed to be saved. And he recognized it in those moments that there was something different about these men and they had an answer 
to a question that nobody else could answer in the way they could answer the question. What must I do to be saved? It's the most important question you will ever ask in your life. You know, something that we don't talk much about in our churches today is something called hell. But that's why you need to be saved. Your sins are going to take you to an eternal hell if you don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and receive his payment for the penalty of your sins. You know, it's unfortunate that we live in a day when everything's on a screen because we've lost the ability to tell stories in a way that you can visualize them in your mind. You remember when you were a kid growing up and you'd read something? It wasn't on a screen. It wasn't on a, something in your hand. You know, it wasn't on a video. It you know, wasn't, wasn't on a game controller. I mean, you could hear somebody telling the story, and they drew a picture so vivid you could see it in your mind. One of those that could do that was a Methodist preacher by the name of William Muncie. He gave a poignant explanation, a poignant description of what hell may be like. Listen to his words. It may be a dark and frightful sphere, isolated from all worlds, cursed of God, erratic and lawless, rolling beyond the confines of creation with no sun or star to light up the darkness and chase away its infernal vapors with rivers and oceans of liquid fire, continents of incinerated rock, and scattered scoriae, and rent with awful chasms. Over it the lost may walk and run and grope and stumble and fall and climb forever. It may have a strange power over the lost, answering to gravity, which binds them to its surface and compels them to dwell there through all eternity. But then he says, it may not be this. And then he goes on. It may be a world riven and shivered by volcanic fires and smothered gases where lurid darkness and hazy light mingle in dusty shades where smoky flames ooze from a thousand crannies and flicker and flash from a thousand fissures where serpents hiss in every gorge and goblins dance on every hill and specters, that's, that's uh, supernatural beings, uh, specters creep from every rock and phantoms ride on every wind and demons sit upon every mountain and where redoubtable horrors mounted up upon fiery dragons chase the ruined souls over smoldering plains, gloomy, gloomy hills, mountains dingy, morasses foul and, a, and an abysm squalid and chase it forever. You say, what? He's telling you that hell is an awful place. If you don't understand the picture, you don't understand the scripture. When Jesus talked about hell, there was a valley just outside the walls of Jerusalem, and all of the refuse of the city was taken into that valley. It was the, it was the trash dump of the city, and they burned the trash there, and there was a constant, continual fire that was always burning in that valley. And Jesus says, that's what hell's like. It's a place of constant, forever torment. I can't tell you everything there is to tell you about hell. Maybe some of the things that Methodist preacher said are accurate. Maybe there's some things that you and I haven't even begun to imagine, but it's worse than anything you ever want to experience. 
I have a friend who's an evangelist. He's now in heaven. I helped him to put this little book together called Poems That Preach. Uh, I did this back in 1982. This was one of the last things I did before I came here. When I say helped him put it together, I helped him, helped him lay it out. My brother-in-law was in the printing business. I learned that, and I helped him to lay it out so that he could get it printed. And he would take it along with him. He preached at our church about twice a year, our home church, about twice a year. And he, some of these poems that he turns into songs, they're, they're comical. They're picking at things that, that uh, we, we, we do in churches and sort of making fun of them, making us laugh at them. One of his famous songs recorded by a number of Southern Gospel groups was the song Excuses. Excuses, excuses, you hear them every day. The devil will supply them if from church you'll stay away. And he goes on. Some of them were comforting. They're songs about heaven. They're songs about God's peace and God's presence and God's mercy. And some of them are convicting. I've heard him sing this song several times. Picture a man a little bit older than I am holding a guitar. He has a country sound, almost a Johnny Cash kind of a sound, and he's picking his guitar. And he's singing these songs in this one particular song. I wish I could sing it for you. I'm not going to sing it for you. Oh, how awful hell must be. Turn away, Jesus, and soon you shall see. With fire to torment you and memories to haunt, you'll never be receiving the things that you want. Oh, how awful hell must be. After 10,000 years of suffering and thirst, no less time awaits you than there was at the first. Oh, how awful hell must be. How terrible are the sounds from that awful place. Forsaken of God, forsaken of his mercy and grace. With weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, screaming and crying and never relief. Oh, how awful hell must be. And after 10,000 years of suffering and thirst, no less time awaits you than there was at the first. Oh, how awful hell must be. Sinner, take heed before it's too late. Call on Jesus. He can save you from this terrible fate. Or after 10,000 years of suffering and thirst, there'll be no less time awaiting you than there was at the first. Oh, how awful hell must be. Weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, screaming and crying, but never relief. Oh, how awful hell must be. And then he comes to the end of the song and he sings this last phrase and the words fall off as he sings them with cries for water, 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 water. You say, preacher, we're too sophisticated for that. Well, maybe you are, sir. Maybe you are, ma'am. But I'm just simple enough to believe that the Bible says that there is a heaven to which we can go and there is a hell for those who reject Jesus Christ. And oh, how awful hell must be. Can I tell you that if you saw hell like it really is, you would crawl on your hands and knees to get your friends and your neighbors and your family under the sound of the gospel. If we just believed what the Bible says about hell. 
The text tells us about an important question. What must I do to be saved? The text tells us about an informed answer. This is the answer that you have to learn to give. You may use a synonym here or there to describe this answer, but this is the right answer. This is the only answer. The answer isn't in the Baptist church or the Methodist church or the Presbyterian church. It's, it's not in our doctrinal orthodoxy. It's, it's not in uh, the, the baptistry. It's, it's not in any of those things. What was the answer? Verse 31, so they said, Paul and Silas said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You will be saved. By the way, I don't know how much of that explanation this man understood at first, but in verse 32, it says, Then they, Paul and Silas, spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. They went on to make sure that they were informed, that they understood what they were saying, the significance of, of what he was telling them. It's important to recognize that saving faith has content. A person cannot believe something unless he understands that something. And so we have to explain the gospel. We have to explain what Jesus has done for us. We have to explain the consequences of our own sin. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce says, Notice that Paul did not suggest counseling. He did not give a lecture on theology. He did not explore the significance of the jailer's religious terms. He did not talk about the sacraments. He did not even talk about the church. The man was asking about salvation, and the apostle replied directly, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. That's the answer. And in that response, he acknowledges the problem. He's a sinner that needs to be saved. He points to the provision, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came into this world, the sinless Son of God who died a sacrificial death and took the penalty of our sins on himself, who was buried and who rose again that third day and lives forever to offer eternal life to anyone who will receive it by believing. He clarifies the prerequisite. He says you have to believe. He doesn't, he doesn't put something else in front of it. He didn't put something else behind it. You have to believe. And he affirms the promise. He says, whoever will believe, whoever believes will be saved. That's the promise. You will be saved. And here's this Philippian jailer, this hardened Roman soldier who's been shaken to the very core of his being because he knows something supernatural is going on in his very presence. And he says, what do I have to do to be saved? And the answer comes back, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Can I just say that to you today? If you'll believe on the Lord Jesus, if you'll believe that he is the Savior and the only hope you have and rest your entire eternal destiny on Jesus, then you'll be saved. If you're resting it on baptism, if you're resting it on me, if you're resting it on your good works, if you're resting it on your social activities, you'll never get to heaven. This text tells us about an important question, an informed answer, but then it tells us about an individual response. He says, if you'll believe, you can be saved, both you and your household. 
Now please understand something. Here's not what he's, he's not saying. He's not saying, okay, Philippian jailer, you put your faith in Jesus and everybody else is okay. What he's saying is you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and everybody else in your house who does the same will be okay. It's something that each one of us has to willingly do. We have to make that decision. We have to choose to trust the Lord Jesus ourselves. I can't get to heaven on the coattails of my parents or my grandparents. I can't get to heaven on the coattails of our nation. It's a Christian nation or used to be. I can't get to heaven on the coattails of religious activities or ceremonialism. I get to heaven by one way. I put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and I believe that he is my only hope and my entire eternal destiny rests on Jesus. Hey, I'm not going to stand before God someday. It doesn't happen this way, by the way. You don't stand at a gate and Peter go through a book and... It doesn't happen that way, but let me just tell you that there was such a gate, and I had to go through that gate. And he says, on what basis should you be allowed into heaven? I'm going to look at whoever is standing there, if that person was even standing there, which they won't be standing there, because Jesus already knows who's his. And I'd say, because Jesus said so. I have no other hope but Jesus. You say, but you're a preacher. Forty plus years you've been preaching. Never get me into heaven. On April the 15th, 1912, there were 1,500 people who perished in the 35 degree waters of the North Atlantic. You know what ship I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Titanic when it struck an iceberg. Mary and I have been through a museum with, uh, I'm sure, uh, copies of, the, uh, of artifacts, uh, not, not the actual artifacts, but copies of the artifacts that were on that ship that day. When you pay your, your fee to go into the museum, you get a ticket and it has the name of a person on it. You don't find out till the end, when you get to the end of the museum, whether that person lived or died. I remember going through and reading the different things and looking at the different things. They have a place where you stop and you can put your water in your put your hand in the water that is 35 degrees. That'll wake you up. On that ship, that fateful night was a, a preacher from Glasgow, Scotland. His name was John Harper. And he was headed across the sea to preach at Moody Memorial Church. When it became evident that the Titanic was going to go down, he offered his own life jacket to someone else and began yelling, Women, children, and the lost first. It's even said about him that he was on deck talking to somebody about their eternal destiny when they struck the iceberg. Whether that's true or not, we don't know, but that's what's said. Someone described the horrifying cries of more than 1,500 people as they clung to and grabbed for anything they could get their hands on. For over 50 minutes, the cries of the perishing could be heard. And as Harper clung to a board in the cold waters, he cried out over and over, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The last thing he said before he went under for the last time, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 
Four years after the Titanic went down, a man stood in the meeting in Hamilton, Ontario, and he said, are you with me? He said, I'm a survivor of the Titanic. When I was drifting alone on that fateful night, the tide brought Mr. John Harper of Glasgow also on a piece of wreck near me. Man, he said, are you saved? No, I said, I'm not. He replied, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. The waves pushed him away, but strange to say, brought him back a little later. And he said, are you saved now? <laughs> no, I said, I cannot honestly say that I am. He said again, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And shortly after, he went down. And there alone in the night with two miles of water under me, I believed. I, in John Harper's last convert. What message does everybody need to hear? Why do we keep sending missionaries? Why do we keep trying to get you involved in telling people the gospel? Why do we want you to talk to your family and your friends? Because the most important question has to be asked for every single person, and it has to be answered rightly. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. One last thing, and I'll skip some things here. The text tells us about an indisputable change. This man changed after he put his faith in Jesus. You say, how do you know that? I know that because of verses 32 to 34. We see it in his care of the prisoners. He washed their stripes. He brought them into his house. He set food before them. He showed them hospitality. We, it's, we see it in his concern for his own family. He brought these two preachers into his own house and had them to explain the gospel to them like they had explained it to him. We see it in his celebration after believing. It says that he rejoiced having believed, past tense, having believed in God. He rejoiced. We see it in his confession. We see it in his confession. He was baptized. You say baptism really isn't all that important, preacher. Well, baptism doesn't get you into heaven, but baptism is absolutely important. It's a matter of running the flag up the pole and saying, I'm with Jesus. And I'm not ashamed to be known that I'm with Jesus. It's a confession that I believe Jesus died for my sins and rose again and lives today and has changed my life. And I want everybody to know I'm with Jesus. See, it's no big deal. It's absolutely a big deal. It says the first step of obedience for every person who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was no delay. At the end of verse 33, and immediately... He and all his family were baptized immediately. So well, I'm going to put it off for a week or a month or a year or two years or five years or ten years or I'm going to put it off till somebody else goes with me that's not been baptized themselves. You don't put it off. And this man was changed. When you meet Jesus, he changes you. He begins a process within your life that works itself out day by day as God begins his work within you to make you into the image of his son. I gave you a card when you came in. It has lines on the back of it. Nine lines. Here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you this week to write down the names. You can get two names, at least two names per line. That's 18 names. 
of people you know need to be saved. People you know that if they go down without Jesus, they're going to an eternal hell to pay the penalty of their own sin because they wouldn't receive the payment that Jesus made for them. I want you to write their names down. And here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to pray for them every single day. Just put it in your Bible. And every time you open your Bible to read it, you pray for those people on that card, and then you do everything in your power to get them under the sound of the gospel, whether it's you saying you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, or it's you're bringing them to something that we're doing where we can say to them, you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Do something, everything you can. I believe that if you saw the eternal destiny of people who are who are lost without Jesus, you would, call, you would crawl on your hands and your knees till they were bloody to get them the message. Whoever believes will be saved. Please bring it back with you next week with as many as 18 names or more. Let me finish. The story is told of a soldier in a battlefield hospital. He's dying. He isn't going to make it. There's nothing they can do for him. It's just a matter of a little while and he'll slip away into eternity. A chaplain comes, as they often do when a soldier is dying. This man had been wicked. This man had hurt many different people through the course of his life. And the chaplain says, what can I do for you? How can I help you? What can I do for you? How can I help you? And this soldier lay dying. He said, sir, there's nothing anybody can do for me right now. What I need is somebody who can undo some things for me. I've got great news for you. Jesus can undo. As a matter of fact, he does better than that. Jesus makes new everything but you've got to come to Jesus and you've got to believe on Jesus for yourself young people you've got to believe on Jesus adults you've got to believe on Jesus 